0: Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly.
1: Uh, Hi friends, Uh, please keep uh, 1 Corinthians 7 open in front of you. Uh, Today's going to be a little bit different. Um, We have a special guest with us, Danny Tariq, who's going to be sharing in in a moment. And we think about this topic of singleness. And the reason why is um, there are more single adults than ever before uh, in most Western societies. Um, Here in Clovelly, uh, 22% of adults... Uh, live alone, uh, kind of, and that's, that's just in little Clovelly, uh, 42% uh, of the adults in Clavelli have never been married, uh, 9% are divorced or separated, and it's just interesting how much expectations have changed in our society about uh, marriage to the extent that one report estimates that you know, in the next 20, 25 years that one in four adults will never marry. Um, now it's interesting, um, what do you think about that? Um, And what does the Bible have to say about that? Hopefully something better than um, what the church has said at points, um, at points in human uh, history and church history, um, the church has kind of denigrated singleness and other times really idolised it as though it's this higher, purer, um, kind of better way to be. And today we're just going to stop and think about singleness. Part of the reason is over the last few weeks we've been looking at uh, what's called the household code, uh, in the book of Colossians and uh, that was an ancient structure that was kind of familiar in the ancient world. Um, Aristotle, for example, had a household code but it was only addressed to the male in power um, but the New Testament takes this kind of familiar structure and overturns it and subverts it and um, God thinks uh, that it's worthwhile speaking to, uh, to wives and to children and to slaves even. And in that way, kind of, um, the New Testament takes this table and kind of subverts it and reinvents it in a whole different way. But because uh, we've been looking at that, that table, it doesn't address singleness, it didn't in the ancient world. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to take a little detour to a different part of the New Testament that does talk about singleness, so that we can think about this together, because um, it's important that we do. Now, um, at this point, I'm going to actually ask Danny to, um, to come and share... Um, before I finish off later on. Danny, uh, you're an expert in singleness.
0: It's what I always wanted to be from the time I was a little girl. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm an expert, but I've been doing a PhD for the last three years on it. Um, so I guess once I get the PhD, that technically makes me an expert. Um, but yeah, I've been doing research uh, full-time uh, into how we Christians um, can be thinking carefully about singleness.
1: Tell us just, um, many of us won't know you, so just tell us a little bit about your Christian story of how you came to know, trust and love Jesus.
0: Yeah, um, I was one of those uh, blessed people who grew up never not knowing who Jesus was um, and that he loved me. I went to church with my sister and my mother and my grandmother Every Sunday, Um, it was the same church that my mum grew up going to. It's what the women in our family did, Um, uh, and it's actually it's actually Wild Street down at uh, Maroubra. Back then, it was St Edmunds. Um, So I always uh, knew who Jesus was, knew that He loved me. When I became a teenager, I went to another church that had more people my age, and I think that's where I discovered what it is to live as someone who knows that Jesus loves them and has died for them. Uh, I know Dave, Uh, Dave and I were both on the ministry staff at St. Matthias at Centennial Park um, for I think only one year Mm -hmm. before, it was the year that um, Dave was planting this congregation, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So we sort of uh, were on the staff team at the same time, Um, but you guys, you know, have a special place in my heart as one of the ministry staff at Matthias who was praying for all of you, Um, so it's a delight to be here today and actually see uh, God's fruitfulness um, after all those prayers. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You're going to share with us.
0: I am. Well, thanks uh, for having me. I know this is a bit of a different thing to do, so I appreciate you um, inviting me to come along. Uh, Dave and I had a chat about what would be most helpful for me to share with you today. And you know, I could talk for hours about this because I have three years of research and I've had to do it all by myself. And I just love talking about it and getting out to anyone I can, so it's not all in my head. Uh, But I don't have three hours. I have 20 minutes, um, which I might push to 21, but we'll see. I was thinking, well, I could give you a top 10 list of things not to say to single Christians. Uh, I'd have to whittle it down because there's a lot more than 10. But we, we could go that way. Uh, we could sort of go, uh, what are the top five ways for you to love and care for your single Christian friends? And those kind of things would be a really worthwhile and valuable uh, endeavor to undertake. And I'd commend, you know, recommend you to, to do that yourselves. But as I've been doing my research, Uh, this illustration sort of came to my head that shaped the way that I uh, not just think about um, Christian singleness in our context today but think about how I talk to people about it Um, and that illustration is when we go uh, to the doctor for example with a health problem whatever that health problem might be the first thing he's going to do is say right well we need to work out what's going on we need to diagnose it before we jump to treatment there's no point going ahead and giving you the script if we're not sure what's actually happening And that is the way that I've started to think about singleness in our context as Christians today. We actually need to come to grips with where we're at as an evangelical Bible-believing Australian Christian community on uh, how we think about singleness from the Bible, how we think pastorally about singleness, um, how singles belong within our communities, before we jump straight to the, oh, well, what should we do? Uh, So that's what I want to do today. I want to share with you a little bit about uh, my diagnosis, really, of where we're at before we move on to looking at how we might treat treat it. I do also want to say that I'm going to be uh, giving you lots of examples from Christian books and Christian um, teachers uh, today. I could have picked a whole lot of secular, non-Christian examples too because there's actually a significant overlap between the way the church and the world tends to think about singleness. So uh, for those of you who may not be particularly familiar with um, the Christian context, I suspect you'll probably be able to resonate quite a lot because there's not that much dissimilarity at times, which is quite a bit of a shame. Anyway, I spent the first year of my research pretty much reading every book that I could possibly get my hands on about Christian singleness, the endless... um, catchy titles that use the word single in lots of different ways. It's made it very hard for me to work out what a title for my PhD would should be because every possible permutation of single has been used in a book title somehow. Um, lots of really dodgy covers as well, might I say. Um, but during that time, uh, I spent about a year reading everything I could, listening to every sermon I could, listening to podcasts, reading online articles, and just trying to get an understanding of the lay of the land. And as I did that... What I started to see was there's a number of key themes that have developed uh, in the way that we Bible-believing Christians today tend to think about the place of singleness. Those three themes are, let's let's see if this is going to, oh, that's you, yeah. Those three themes are the sense of identity for single Christians, the sense of purpose for single Christians, and also the place of belonging that single Christians experience within their church communities. And I just want to walk us through those three things now and give you a bit of an insight into the kind of things that I've discovered as we look at what our diagnosis is. I want to start by asking you a question. It's a rhetorical question, so please don't call out the answer. Um, But when was the last time you referred to a friend who was married or even yourself? Uh, if you're married, when was the last time you referred to them as being unsingle or not single? When was the last time you've introduced yourself to someone and said, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm unsingle? My guess is probably never. And the reason for that is because that's not the way we talk. We don't use marriage at non-singleness as a definition for what marriage is. But we do exactly that for singleness. We never define the married person by the fact that they're not single, but we always define the single person by the fact that they're not married. So people will say, oh, that's Danny, she's single, she's not married. But they won't say, oh, that's Dave, he's married, he's not single. Now, on one hand, you kind of think, what's the big deal? It's just words. But I actually think there is a bit of a big deal. Um, let me show you a book title, this is a reasonably recent book that came out a couple of years ago um, by an author who writes for John Piper's Desiring God kind of website and, and publishing company. Um, this, the subtitle is The Pursuit of Joy in Singleness and Dating, and you can see the title is Not Yet Married, and this is a classic example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Because what we do as Christians with singleness is we define it by what it is not. We define singleness by not being marriage. And Sam Albury, who is a a UK Christian, uh, a single man himself, he puts it beautifully, I think. He says, singleness is all about negation. It's all about not having certain things. We think about it almost entirely in negative terms singleness is what i and others have uh, recognized it to be is a deficit identity to be single for me as a single person it's not about who or, or what i am it's about who or what i'm not i'm not married i'm not a wife a single man is not a husband so from the very outset the way we christians just think Define singleness in a very innate way that we don't tend to really be particularly aware of is as a state of lacking, as a state of deficiency. But there's more to say about the single identity. I want to give you a handful of quotes. These are from, um, I could have picked 30 more than this, so I just had to go with three. Um, they're not obscure, they're from pretty well known Christian writers and books um, that talk about the normality of marriage. So, Let me go, I'll just go to that one there. Andreas Kostenberger says, to most Western Christians, it appears self-evident that marriage is the normal state. Mark Driscoll uh, once said, the Bible elevates marriage, it embraces marriage and marriage is to be honored and to be preferred. And Debbie Macon, who's um, an author wrote that to remain unmarried is to act against our very nature. Now that's just a tiny selection But what we see as a predominant theme in Christian thinking about singleness is that it is abnormal. It is aberrant. Marriage is what we're made for. Marriage is what is to be pursued by everyone. Marriage is normal, and so singleness is abnormal. But it gets worse because for some singles, for some people, sorry, singleness isn't simply abnormal, it's deviant. So, leading American uh, evangelical pastor John MacArthur spoke at a big ministry conference in 2016 in the US and he had this to say from the platform in front of a lot of people. Let me tell you that the most devastating attack on marriage is coming today from singleness. Singleness is an assault on marriage. For some, people like John MacArthur, but he's not alone, Christian singleness isn't simply abnormal or aberrant, but it's deviant. The themes in Christian books and teaching on the single identity don't stop there. Uh, The world around us sees the establishment of a romantic relationship, whether that's marriage or not, but a, a romantic coupling as a kind of leveling up in maturity. Uh, A way that it's a mark that's almost necessary for you to say, I am a true adult now. Unfortunately, our Christian culture bears far too much resemblance to the world on this count. Because we too often see marriage as a necessary mark of spiritual maturity. We see it, uh, marriage and family, parenting, as the in which God promises to sanctify us, to make us more holy, to make us more like Jesus. So, this is my favorite definition of irony. The morning morning congregation took a little a moment to get this, so see if you can be a bit quicker than them. Definition of irony here. If you want to become more like Jesus, I can't imagine any better thing to do than to get married. Marriage is the preferred route to becoming more like him these guys got it. This group's a bit silent. If you didn't get it, Jesus was single. He wasn't married. So read that back into the quote. We've also got Debbie Macon who says, singles miss out on the means that God has established to know him more deeply and intimately. And what we see coming up over and over again, this is just a small selection once more, is a sense that the single identity is an immature identity. There's a few other themes that came up. Um, I can only pick one more because I'm going to run out of time. I mentioned a little while ago a book uh, called Not Yet Married um, that got quite a lot of promotion in the U.S. It's got some really helpful things to say, so I'm you know if you come across it, pick it up and give it a read because there's some helpful things in there. But it also says things like this. He says the single Christian life caters to and cultivates selfishness, is characterized by preoccupation and self-pity breeds an inherent sense of entitlement, enables an apathy towards holiness, fosters a lack of commitment and irresponsibility, and promotes a lack of self-control. So often we Christians think of the single Christian identity as one which is uniquely sin-prone. We think that single Christians are far more likely to struggle with sin, particularly sexual sin, than married Christians. But I think when we stop and really reflect on that, we discover it's, it's actually a little bit silly. All sorts of different life situations, not just marriage but work, all sorts of personal circumstances mean that all of us face different and unique struggles and temptations uh, and ways that we're challenged to be holy in our lives. And the Bible is pretty clear that we all manage, regardless of whether we have a ring on our finger or not, we all manage to do a pretty thorough job of giving into those temptations at times. All of us sin. Singles are not more uniquely sin-prone than married people are. I recognize that has been pretty depressing and I'd like to welcome you to my world for the last three years. The single Christian identity is so often characterized as deficient, abnormal, deviant, Immature, uniquely sin-prone. And I hope in sharing that with you, you're able to see why I think it's so important for us to come to grips with the diagnosis before we move on to the treatment. We need to understand what we're truly grappling with here before we think about, well, how do we then constructively move forward from this point? But before we get to that treatment, I want to talk to you briefly about two other aspects of how we Christians tend to think about singleness. And they are the sense of purpose for the single Christian and also the sense of belonging. So a sense of purpose. If I was to ask you now to turn to the person next to you and, and don't do it again, but if I was to, and say to you, what is the purpose of marriage? My guess is that you'd be able to come up with three or four answers pretty quickly off the top of your head. What is the purpose of marriage? Well, companionship. Uh, it's the context in which God wants us to bring up, bear children, and, and raise them. Sexual intimacy is a purpose for marriage. And perhaps most importantly, um, as Dave will talk about a little later on, that marriage we see in Scripture is a, a foretaste, a foreshadow of the heavenly marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, if I was to say to you, you've had those answers, you've come up with them, if I was to say, But have a think about how difficult marriage can be. Look at how hard marriage is at times. Think about how many people who are married are really hurting in their marriages. I suspect you'd probably say, well, yes, that's true. But despite all that messiness, marriage still has intrinsic purpose. No matter how much of a mess we make of our marriages, Marriage itself still has an inherent value. And you would be absolutely right. I could not agree with you more. Marriage might be difficult and hard and painful at times, but despite our experience of marriage, we Christians rightly believe that marriage still has an intrinsic sense of purpose and value and worth. But we don't think that way about singleness. We tend to only see singleness as valuable when the single Christian is living the valuable single life, when they're embracing the time they have, for example, and the energy and the relational freedom that is theirs for the sake of the gospel, when they're content in their singleness and using it to serve Jesus well. Now, don't get me wrong. That's a brilliant thing. That's what we ought to be doing as single Christians. But... When a single Christian isn't content, when they're really struggling and unhappy in their singleness, when they're not using their time and their energy and their freedom to be focused on the gospel as much as we'd encourage them to be, we struggle to say that there is anything intrinsically good and valuable about their singleness. I've come to think of this as the instrumental framework, go back, the instrumental framework of thinking about singleness. We only tend to think that the single Christian life has purpose if the single Christian is living it purposefully. Now that is different to how we think about marriage. Regardless of how messy or difficult marriages can be, we're committed to the idea that there is something inherently intrinsically purposeful and valuable about them. But we don't think that way about singleness. Christian singleness so often is seen to have no inherent or intrinsic goodness about it. If the single Christian isn't living the good single Christian life, then can we really say that singleness is good? The problem is I don't think that's the way that the Bible talks about singleness. And I'm not going to go there now because Dave is going to share some of that in a few moments' time. But I encourage you to keep your ears out for that about how we move past just an instrumental framework of singleness. Let me clarify, the instrumental framework of singleness is a good one too. There is good reason for singleness to be viewed as good because of what good it can do, but I want to argue there's more uh, to singleness as goodness as well. The last one is place of belonging. Now, if you ask any single Christian who you know reasonably well, who you think will give you a pretty honest answer, whether they feel like they truly genuinely belong in their church families their chances are pretty good that they will express some sense of hesitation about their answer some will even express an outright denial that they feel like they belong now i want to be really clear here please don't hear me saying this is particularly true here of Clovelly, because knowing people here as i do knowing dave and some of the other ministry staff as well as people in the congregations, I am actually confident that it is not particularly true of this church. I'm speaking in generalizations here, you need to work out how you bring this to bear upon your own church community. The sad reality is that generally speaking, single Christians struggle to feel like they really belong in their church families. In our wider Australian community, and this reflects some of the statistics that Dave gave you earlier, the split between those who are married and those who are not married is very roughly about 50-50. In our Anglican churches in Australia, the split between those who are married and those who are not married is about two-thirds, one-third. Now what that means is we have many more married people in our churches than there are proportionally in in our community, and many less single people, whether they be never married, divorced or widowed, though we do better with widows, can I say, we tend to have more widows in our churches than we do in the wider community. We have less singles proportionally than in the communities that surround us. Now an outworking of that, or perhaps part of the reason for it, it's a little bit what came first, the chicken or the egg, it's hard to tell. An outworking or a reason for this is that today's evangelical churches tend to be primarily built upon and concerned with and structured around families. And by families, I mean biological nuclear families. In fact, just the other day, a friend of mine sent me a quote from a new book that he um, had just started reading. It was written by um, a man who on the back of the book is described as a world-renowned Christian author and speaker. So again, we're not talking about some obscure guy who's self-published or anything like that. And he says right there on page two, the nucleus of a church is the family. And family includes a single-person family as well as families with bundles of children running around. Now, I genuinely don't know what he means by single-person family. I'm not being trying to be facetious there. I, I don't know. It just feels like a fudge. But maybe I'm not being fair. I don't know. But leaving that aside, if that statement is true, and I want to come back to ask that question in a moment, if that statement is true, Then I encourage you to put yourself in the shoes of a single Christian and think, how would they feel? If the church is ultimately a collection of lots of different sorts of families who gather together, what sense of belonging does a single Christian truly have? At times, a lot of us don't have much of a sense of belonging at all. And even when we do feel welcome in our churches, and we quite often do feel that sense of welcome. It's very often the kind of welcome that guests receive rather than family. We often feel that we've been invited into something that is not so much for us as it is for this other group over here. The single person's sense of identity, of their purpose, of their place of belonging. That's the diagnosis that of the 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 attitudes the theological and the pastoral attitudes that we broadly speaking bible believing christians today tend to have about singleness so if that's a diagnosis what is the treatment well again we could talk for hours about this i've got just a couple of minutes so i want to give you what i think is the most important big picture answer to the treatment the the foundational answer in that sense and i want to do it by using that quote that i just had up on the screen I'll put it up again, as a bit of a case study, and an example. When I get it up, okay. So Scott McKnight writes, the nucleus of a church is the family, and family includes a single person family, as well as families with bundles of children running around. And then he goes on to add, the health of the church is shaped by healthy families. Now I admittedly have not read his whole book, but from what I have read, He states this as if it's a bit of a self-evident fact, as if it's absolutely obvious that church is ultimately a grouping of individual families, including single-person families, as if it's absolutely self-evident that the well-being of the church is dependent upon the level of well-being of the families who are at its core. Now, in one sense, you might be sitting there thinking, well, maybe there's something to that. And if you are, I, I get that because the first time I read it, I thought, hmm, okay. But then I went back and reread it, asking myself, why? Why is that true? Where does that thinking come from? And most importantly, is it from the Bible? Does the Bible speak about the church, the body of Christ? as ultimately being made up of lots of individual different families who gather together? Is that its nucleus? Does the Bible speak about the health of the body of Christ being dependent upon the health of the families who make it up? How does this idea that he presents of church being built upon our biological nuclear family units, how does that gel with what the Bible has to say about the church being a new and an eternal family that each of us, regardless of what our individual family situations are, is adopted into. And not just adopted into, but we've been adopted into it, predestined for that before time began. How does that gel with that? How does that gel with the scene in Matthew 12 when Jesus is um, told, he's speaking And he's told that his mother and his brothers have arrived and they want to talk to him and he responds with these words who is my mother and who are my brothers pointing to his disciples he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother he redefines an understanding of what family is. His picture here of who his family is, is not his nuclear biological family, but it's his disciples. It's those who follow him. How does that gel with that quote from Scott McKnight? Now I'd love for us to spend more time exploring these things. We don't have that time, but I wanted to just use that as a bit of a case study, a bit of an example because I think it shows us the vital question we have to ask when it comes to our treatment on the topic of Christian singleness. And that question is, what is our thinking about marriage and singleness ultimately being shaped by? As we reflect on the way that we Christians tend to think about the single identity being deficient and abnormal and immature and sin-prone, is that because that's what we see in scripture? Or is it because we've imbibed a sense of this from the world around us? As we reflect on the way that we don't tend to think about the single Christian life as having an intrinsic sense of purpose and value, is that because we're convinced scripture says that? Or have we kind of come to that assumption because of the cultural context in which we exist? As we reflect on the way that we think about the makeup and the nucleus of our churches and the place of singles in those church communities, are we being shaped by what scripture has to say or are we resting upon a whole lot of assumptions and ideals and norms that may have been smuggled into our Christian thinking in a way that we have not recognised? I've recently finished reading an excellent book, called Breaking the Marriage Idol. I, As a graphic designer myself, I really appreciate the cover. It's what caught my eye. Uh, it's by, um, I love this name, this author's name, Cutter Calloway, such an American name. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I'm still processing it, but it, gee, it's a good book. It gets you thinking. And Cutter writes this. We've not only adopted a distorted and distorting vision of marriage, singleness, and sexuality from our cultural environs, But we now organize our entire common life together as if this vision were normative for everyone within the Christian community. As a result, we're no longer aware of all that is hidden from our view. We're wearing blinders, but have mistaken them for spectacles. So friends, what is the ultimate treatment? It's taking off our blinders and going back to God's word. It's allowing scripture to shape our thinking on all of these matters. It's wrestling with the Bible's teaching about both marriage and singleness, and wrestling with it as it corrects us when we're tempted to either idealize or idolize either of them. I know that I have left you probably with a lot more questions than answers. Uh, I'm not apologetic about that. Dave is gonna maybe suggest some answers to us in a moment. But really what I want to encourage all of us, myself included, whether we're single or married, to do is to open God's word and to search for our answers in there. Because I am absolutely convinced, I wouldn't be spending four years of my life doing this, if I wasn't absolutely convinced that God's word contains wonderful and exciting and hopeful answers about the place of both marriage and singleness in the Christian life. And the way that we as the gathered community of God work together here and now on earth and love each other here and now on earth as together we look forward to that eternity when none of us will be married to each other and all of us will be gathered around God's throne together. And on that note, I'm going to hand back today.
1: Hi, friends, why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7 and have a bit of a look at that together. This is a shorter sermon just by the way, okay? (laughs) Um, Revolution, rationale, relationships, okay? If it's a help, it's on your handout. I'm just going to pause and pray. Uh, Father, we do, uh, like every week, we pray that you would please help us to come to your word, to see what is really there, uh, that you would reveal yourself to us, even uh, when that not only comforts us, but challenges us and confronts us. Uh, But Lord, we know that to know you truly uh, is our deepest uh, longing and fulfillment. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 6. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. I think he's talking about his singleness. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And then, if you can go down to verse twenty-seven, uh, just over the page, uh, if you're looking at our blue Bibles. Verse twenty-seven: Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff here. Uh, we're just going to keep it simple, right? Um, notice, first of all, the single life is a good life and a good gift from god okay god doesn't do bad gifts now many of us i think in our kind of western society australian culture we've kind of grown up with the conveyor belt um sort of uh, approach to things like finish school there's study there's work there's career um there's house there's marriage there's kids there's kind of retirement there's sitting on a porch yelling at teenagers like that's just kind of the way it goes is that Maybe that last bit's just me. But you know, we've got this conveyor belt kind of thing. And even more in the ancient world, those assumptions ran so deeply that you did not have honour if you did not have an heir. And you did not have a future if you didn't have family to look after you in your old age. And here's Christianity kind of revolutionising the ancient world in the way that it honoured the single life. Okay, so marriage is a good thing if you desire it, um, but singleness isn't, it's not just plan B. It's not the consolation prize. The single life is an honourable life. In fact, there's a verse there where he says um, it's even a preferable life because it has an opportunity to single-mindedly serve God. Um, In a moment, we're going to pray for our friend... Um, I'm just going to say M, because this will be recorded, uh, who's working in an unspecified Muslim country where she's um, sharing Jesus with Muslim women in a way that she could not do uh, if she was married and there with children. Um, but her singleness gives her an opportunity to love and serve Jesus in a way that's not uh, possible if she weren't there as a single woman. Um, I think one of the things that might be challenging and maybe a little diagnostic because I know that many of us, particularly in the afternoon, uh, many of us do find ourselves married, is as you pray for your children, would you be happy for them to grow up, not marry, no grandkids because they're in a Muslim country helping to see a whole lot of spiritual children part of God's family forever? You can have a think about that. So there's a revolution. Um, Singleness is an honourable life second thing is there's a rationale what's the rationale in this chapter well it's the fact that we stand on the edge of eternity that's what this chapter is saying Uh, so come down to verse 29 1 corinthians 7 verse 29 the apostle writes this is what i mean brothers the appointed time has grown very short from now on let those who have wives live as though they had none those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now what's all that about? It's saying on God's timeline, the arrival of Jesus in human history is like the beginning of the end. Um, God's king has come, Jesus. God's kingdom has begun as, as people recognise that Jesus is the king. And the next date that's circled on God's calendar is the return of the king, Jesus, uh, to judge the world with justice. Um, and this wasn't saying in the first century, hey guys, this next week, give up your jobs and don't need to care for the earth and all that. It's not saying that. But it was saying on God's timetable... Whether it's five minutes or five millennia, that is soon. The time is short. And this is saying to stand, to realise that we stand on the cusp of eternity will change the way you think about singleness and about marriage. Um, Because if you know that for all eternity you will enjoy a perfect relationship of love with the Lord Jesus, that takes the pressure off needing to be fulfilled by marriage now. Um, whether you are married or hope to be married. just takes the pressure off because you're going to be fulfilled by Jesus. And in fact, it's that same perspective of eternity um, that helps us see how singleness is actually a portrait of the gospel. Okay, singleness is a portrait of the gospel. Now, if you've been around church circles for a little while, you will have heard um, probably Christians talk about the fact that marriage is a portrait of the gospel. Okay, marriage is the bride and groom, picture of Jesus and the church and And kind of eternity is pictured as a wedding feast and it's going to be a banquet and it's going to be great. It's this wedding reception that goes forever. But we're less inclined to think about how singleness is a picture of the gospel. But it is. It points to eternity. The the celibate single life says that the Christian's ultimate identity is in Jesus. Um, It's our relationship with Jesus, not our other half, that completes us. Um, Singleness says that the life worth living doesn't have to have sex or marriage or children. And not because those things are bad in any way, they're actually amazing, but Jesus is even more amazing, you see? Uh, Amy Carmichael was a missionary uh, woman in India for 55 years. She founded orphanages and freed prostitutes in the name of Jesus. And at one point she said in this kind of beautiful bit of poetry, she said, there is a joy... Joy found nowhere else when we can look into Christ's face when he says to us, am I not enough for thee? And the joy is found in being able to answer with a true, yes, Lord, thou art enough. Do you see what he's saying? They're the words of every Christian. Jesus, you are enough. Jesus, you are enough. But there's something about our single brothers and sisters that your life is able to portray that even more clearly. Um, The single life points to eternity because it says the deepest ties aren't our physical bloodline, but the bloodline of Jesus, and that the ties that bind us aren't the family ties, but the ties we have in the family of God. Now, Isaiah 56, uh, that passage we read, talks about eunuchs, um, those unable uh, to marry and have children for certain anatomical reasons that we don't need to go into now. But God promises to those who in the ancient world were unable to marry and unable to have children that promise is you're going to have a name and you're going to have an inheritance that is better than sons and daughters because you're part of God's family that lasts forever. And when that last book of the Bible, a Revelation, takes us to eternity, it says that the, the multitude who are going to be there as part of God's family, the noise is going to be like a thousand waterfalls and peals of thunder with multitudes crying out, hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. That's the rationale, eternity. And so lastly, um, the, the revolution, the rationale, the relationships. Um, There's something about those relationships that we know will last into eternity that makes those relationships matter so much now. Um, And the way the New Testament keeps putting it is that we actually need singleness and marriage together to get the full picture of God and his love for us. And practically, that means um, those marrieds need singles in their life and singles need married folk in their life. Um, We need that as a church community. And so as we finish up, um, my single friends, um, we need you to remind us um, that God's family, God's family is what is ultimate. Um, In your struggles and at times perhaps disappointment, um, please don't give in to that self-indulgence that says, well, you know what, I'm just going to make work my life. I'm going to make travel my life. No, please, please keep making your life about Jesus. Now, um, just personally speaking, um, Mira and I were kind of single long enough. We married a lot later than most of our friends. Um, There's something about that that's meant for us. We just want church to be a place where singles and marrieds can belong together. We don't have a family service at this church like many churches label them. And yet, I just know, (laughs) nine years in, I'm sure that we're caught up in the the tribe that is family and the tiredness. um, And we just, um, single brothers and sisters, we need you to speak into our lives and challenge us at times and tell us how hard it is and don't give up on us and invite yourself over and just quietly subvert the family olatry that can happen at times. And then to the couples and families here, friends, um, we need you to keep including single friends um, in your family life, um, if you don't know who to start with, start with the people who are in your community group, or just look around and see who's in our church. But please um, invite um, I mean, invite anyone, but invite your single friends over, um, even when your house is a slum. <laughs> don't treat them like guests; treat them like family. Um, uh, try not to forget what it was always like to arrive alone. Do you remember that? You know, you go to an event, but you always arrive alone. Try and remember that. And don't just holiday with other couples, invite your single friends. And you see, all of this is because when the church feels like family, we'll be able to help our single brothers and sisters to cope when they won't have a family of their own in that sense, but because they're part of God's family that lasts forever. And for all of us, whoever we are, can I please urge all of us to remember that Jesus is the one who died alone so that we can be part of God's family forever. And all God's people said... Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about St Luke's Anglican Church,
1: please visit www.clovelly.org.au.